want to welcome you if you're here for the first time. I want to invite you to, at the end of the morning, we would love it if you would connect to um, someone at this table over here, this funny little uh, presentation-looking table. Uh, it's not a presentation table. It's just kind of a meeting point at the end of the worship service for, um, for us to have a chance to give you a little packet. It's just a packet that sort of captures who we are, what we believe. I uh, would love for you to have the chance to do that. I don't see Clay here this morning. Is someone who's manning that booth this morning so I can identify you? Oh, there you are. Yeah, you usually sit over here. What's up, man? Curveball. I don't know if I can preach this morning with you over there. I'll do my best. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we are thankful, so thankful for the true and awesome and great things we've had the chance to sing back to you this morning. What a wonderful, wonderful cleft we hide in. I'm so thankful that we wear righteous clothing that was won for us by another. What a wonderful, rich, sweet song to lead into our time of sermon. Lord, I pray that as much as it's been a sweet offering to you, I pray that it's prepared our hearts to hear a message about that song. Or a, a song, the song being about this passage of Scripture. What a wonderful connection. I'm so thankful, Lord. Before we spend time in the Word together as a people, I want to lift up another church family in our community. We're thankful that we have the chance to do this each week. and Lord, we... Uh, we beg for your glory and your fame and your renown and the advancement of your kingdom through authentic life fellowship. Jimmy Vaughn, the pastor, and Lord, we want to just first of all this morning lift up Jimmy Vaughn. I'm thankful for a man that is so involved in his community. Very few things, very few ministries in this community don't have Jimmy connected to it in some way. I'm thankful for that work, and I just pray for his energy. I marvel at how he can do that, and I'm thankful that you're using him in so many ways. Lord, I pray with Jimmy, likely for his church. I pray that it is a, a people that are growing in, in um, wisdom, growing in worship, growing in being salty, bright, and aromatic to folks that they're walking with in their workplaces and in their communities. Lord, we just want you to be great and mighty through Authentic Life Fellowship. We're thankful for the work that you're doing there and we pray for much more. Lord, I pray for Jimmy too, just as a man, as a husband, as a father. Lord, I pray that you would guard his heart from the, um, maybe not guard it, but that you would use the challenges of walking with folks in hard places to bring a potency to his preaching and a richness to his counseling. Um, Lord, I pray that in that, that he would not be consumed, but he'd be used. I pray that you would renew him and refresh him, that you would feed him and nourish him in his studies, in his personal quiet times, and his studies for preaching and teaching. Lord, we are thankful for the chance to lift up Jimmy and this church this morning. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I pray that they will be glorifying to you. I pray that between this Sunday and the next two, that we will have such a healthy and rich and word-informed understanding of salvation 
that is something that our children can hear, that our friends will hear from us. I pray that it's something that will come to our minds when we're um, looking in the mirror and thinking about the day or when we're in the throes of a tough day trying to figure out what we can be thankful for. Lord, I pray this sermon and the next two will be something that will be a time in the life of our church that we look back on and we treasure as we had a chance to stop down in what in just a remarkable, remarkable passage of Scripture that you provided for us. We give this time to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 specifically. We've spent some time in the book of Ephesians in the past, and we took a six-week step, seven weeks if you count Greg's sermon from last week, away from the book of Ephesians, and we're coming back to Ephesians this morning. We'll be beginning in chapter 2. My first vehicle purchase years and years ago was in 1990. It was the first vehicle that I had a chance to purchase outright. It was my second vehicle. My first vehicle was a 1985 Toyota 4Runner that my dad helped me buy. I went to college in that vehicle. I was commissioned in the Marine Corps, drove that vehicle out to Quantico, Virginia, and started getting a paycheck, being commissioned, having a real job. Started getting a bi-monthly, twice a month, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, twice a month paycheck. And I thought, man, oh, and what added to that is as I was driving down the road heading to Quantico, and as I drove around Quantico for the weeks that I was there, my 1985 4Runner, which was a stick shift, which has a clutch, for those of you that don't know that, after a period of time, a clutch begins to go out. I didn't know that. I thought my car was just dying. It's a small thing. It's not a cheap repair, but it's, it happens on a stick shift, and about 80, 90, 100,000 miles, you have to replace the clutch. I thought my car was dying, so it gave me enough excuse to go looking for a new car. So I went to the Toyota dealer, and I wasn't going to be satisfied with a vehicle out on the lot. I, for my first official car purchase, was going to buy the one on the showroom floor. The 1990 Toyota 4Runner, which was the first year that they came out with that body style, I drove the previous body style that had the top that came off, the back that came off and kind of became like a convertible type thing. But this thing was bad to the bone. I was smitten. I walked in there and I talked through a trade with the car dealer. And I realized as we talked that my payments were less than my paycheck, so I figured it was a no-brainer. Unfortunately, I didn't take into account little pesky things like gas, insurance, clothing, <laughs> and food. You know, one of those things that, that you really don't think about in a moment like that, I hadn't taken into consideration. Once it was all said and done and I drove the 1990 Forerunner home off the showroom floor, in the months that unfolded after that, I realized that I had enslaved myself to debt enslaved myself to a Toyota 4Runner. It was a heartbreaking realization and one that I needed to deal with and one that kept me awake at night and one that I thought about when I woke up in the morning. A small thing, but a big thing for a new 
young second lieutenant who's trying to do a tough job with a car sitting there keeping you awake. Dead is a terrible feeling. I bet some of you can relate to that heavy feeling of debt. That thing that you think about when you go to bed at night and that you think about waking up in the morning, it feels like a sort of bondage. I want you to imagine for a moment being born into massive debt. Take the car thing and put that away and just imagine something with me for a moment. Imagine being born into a family that has overwhelming debt. And the debt is so profound that the interest collecting on the debt is greater than any payment that you could possibly make. You might scratch and claw at some sort of little payment, but it doesn't even put a dent into the debt. You inherited this debt, and you live sort of in bondage under the shadow of that debt your whole life. Imagine that everywhere you turn, you feel this terrible, dark, and heavy, and oppressive feeling knowing that you don't really have any understanding of what real freedom feels like because you're enslaved to this debt. I want you to connect to those feelings this morning, those feelings of this oppressive debt, so that maybe in the next few minutes you can connect to a greater debt that you may or may not have ever felt, but a debt that every human being carries. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians is a letter that was written by Paul to the saints in Ephesus. And it's important to point out that it's not a gospel tract written to unbelievers. It's written to a church, a bunch of saved folk. And it's written to believers about stuff that believers should know, stuff that believers should see and think, and stuff that believers should hold dear He goes on in the letter of Ephesians to connect these deep and important truths to church and how it should play out in the church context, and then how it should play out even within the home, in a marriage, and in a relationship between parent and child. It's a very, very practical book. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, if you just looked at it in broad sort of um, aerial view, is God's eternal plan to choose and predestine people into his family by means of Christ's work. It begins with these beautiful pictures of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, and it goes to prayer, praying for those that he loves in the church. But in big picture, it's about God's eternal plan. What is God up to? And then in chapter 2 and 3, it's how God is going to go about doing his plan. Chapters 2 and 3 are the nuts and bolts of how he is going to implement his plan 
to make sinner saints and to build them into his church. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to spend these next three weeks. This morning, only the verse three verses, but in big picture, we're going to spend over these next three weeks, the section we're going to spend looking at verses 1 through 10. And verses 1 through 10 are about how God takes sinners deserving his wrath and instead makes them trophies of his grace. It is a beautiful passage. If I could only have one passage of Scripture, it would be these 10 verses. I know, thankfully, we don't have to be limited to one passage. But it is such a beautifully balanced representation of the gospel, of motive, of purpose, of what, how bad we needed it, that it is just a go-to passage. In some ways, too, I want to show you a passage in verse 19 of chapter 1. It is an explanation of something that he's prayed for in the life of the Ephesian church. He prayed for a few things. In verse 17, he prays that the Ephesian church would have a knowledge of him. He prays that they would know the hope to which they've been called, in verse 18, and the riches of his glorious inheritance. And then in verse 19, he prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In some ways, verses 1 through 10 are the application, the nuts and bolts, the visual of the power toward us being played out. In some ways, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 are the demonstration of his power in making sinners saints. He's prayed for it in this church, and now he's going to show them what it looks like. God's power on display in making sinners saints. But first, though, there's some important backdrop for that good news. Some essential backdrop for that good news. First, he begins with their condition before they experience the power of God. Their condition before they experience the power of God. Paul, unlike many evangelists, unlike many Christian speakers today, does not make a beeline to grace. He gets there, but first he goes to debt. First he deals with how bad they need grace. Paul opts for, rather than making a beeline to grace, to develop the desperate human problem, the massive debt inherited from our parents with interest that grows faster than any little measly payment we could make. Before Paul shows us how the debt is paid off, or even that the debt is paid off at all, he wants them to see the debt that's owed and to keep that in view with the payoff. That's a healthy understanding of the gospel. So we're going to follow his lead this morning through the first three verses. We're going to reckon with some very hard but true stuff that's true about mankind. We're gonna, I'm going to use terms like unregenerate. You might hear the term lostness. You might hear the term before Christ. Those are all being used synonymously. Let's begin in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a guiding phrase for the first three verses. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let me identify a few words here for you first put, so you can put a people group with these words. The word you in these first couple of verses is he seems to be apparently speaking to Gentiles. 
the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church, like most of the Roman Empire churches or the diaspora churches, would have a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, likely more Gentiles than Jews. But in this context, he's speaking, at least in these first couple of verses, to Gentile Christians in the church. He's going to get to Jews in a moment. And in fact, he's going to use the word we in verse 3. And context-wise, that seems to be pointing to Jews. We Jews. He's not speaking about we, the people that are on ministry, and then you, the church. He uses the you and the we a lot throughout the book. And in verse 11, he actually uses it to the Gentiles again. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... He deals with the you and the we a lot throughout the book, and he deals with the you as a church, but in this context, he still seems like he's saying you Gentiles first, and later he'll deal with we Jews. I'm going to prompt you and help you see those two different people groups, the you and the we, as we go, because it's important to making sense of this passage. But he says, you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins. And given how he explains death, in these next couple of verses, how he illustrates their death, he's clearly referring to a spiritual condition. Clearly, they're not dead human beings sitting there dead, corpses. He's speaking of their spiritual condition. They were living in what you could call an ongoing spiritual death. Before God's power intervened, they continued in a state of living death. And the cause of that death from the passage right here is trespasses and sins. Sins and trespasses are used there synonymously. They are the cause of death and it is the ongoing human experience that the unregenerate remain in. Sin and transgression leading to death. It's a beautiful and fitting image because spiritually dead people, not beautiful as in something we enjoy, but it's a beautiful imagery of death, it's spiritual death, because spiritually dead people have no ability to quicken themselves to spiritual life. It takes something from outside to bring dead people to life. People that are spiritually dead have no more ability to deal with that spiritual death than Lazarus could do anything about his death as he laid three days dead and decaying in a tomb. It took something external to bring the dead to life. Paul wants the Ephesian Gentiles to know that they were utterly and completely helpless to deal with their spiritual death. And he wants them to know that what landed them there was sin and transgression. But then he illustrates this death and explains this death in three beautifully, heartbreaking, but beautifully clear ways in these next couple of verses. The first is here in verse 2. In which you once walked following the course of the world. You were dead, you Gentiles, in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world. This phrase walking, this word walking means living. You can use them synonymously, interchangeably. He's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of the world. He's pronouncing them dead, yet he says they're walking and they're living. And again, what he's describing is a living death. 
I don't know a whole, whole lot, and I don't know that we have access to a lot of information about what life was like in Ephesus before Christ. We have some ancient historians that give us some clues. There's some things that we could expect. They were likely worshipers of Artemis. One of the the seven wonders of the world was right there in Ephesus, the temple to, to Artemis. We would likely expect that these people before Christ were worshipers of Artemis. They may have also worshipped a a, a bunch of other gods as well. It was not uncommon to worship many different gods in that context. I don't expect, expect, even though they're worshipping these gods that are hard for us to imagine, that in general, this people before Christ were very different than the unregenerate now. If I've learned anything in studying this book and studying people and studying myself, I've found that there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm imagining these people weren't a whole lot different than unregenerate now. I expect that there were some that were sad all the time, melancholy, you know, Eeyore types. There are probably some that are really happy all the time, you know, really upbeat, you know, kind of Tigger kind of people. I bet there were people that felt the darkness that we described right here, and then there were some that likely completely oblivious to it, carefree and easygoing. I like the thought of a black and white group where those that are unregenerate feel and experience the death and darkness and separation from their creator. And then those who are regenerate walk in joy. I like the thought of that, of joy belonging to the regenerate. But if you paid attention to last week's sermon, we know it's not always that cut and dry. Psalm 88 showed us that you can love the Lord and yet experience some very real trauma and death. I like the thought of those black and whites, but unfortunately it doesn't always play out that way. But I want to imagine what the unregenerate life was like for then, and I wonder if, given that it's probably not very different than the unregenerate life now, if music might give us some clue as to what's going on in the mind of the unregenerate. We have XM in our van. I don't have it in my car, but every time we get in the van, the first request in the van, and my whole family can testify to it. Daniel's dropping his head because he knows. Can you put it on the pulse? The pulse is one of the stations on um, the XM radio, and it's pulsing music. Pulsations is actually what they're advertising, and it's this contemporary up, uh, upbeat kind of... Uh, it's not Christian music, those of you that... Want to call us wicked vile sinners? I'm sorry. It's it's not. It's just it's just the pulse. It's just what it is. And the pulse is pretty funny. It's just got. It, it, we we call it the, um, the 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 Taylor Swift because it plays Taylor Swift over and over and over and over and over and over again. <sighs> sorry. But there's this one song on the pulse. This one song. This is Go Big or Go Home. And maybe some of you that might listen to some of those stations might know that song, Go Big or Go Home. Uh, one of the lines in that song, to me, would be the anthem of the unregenerate. One of the lines in the song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll just read it. I guess I'm going home because all my cash is gone. I spent it trying to feel alive. Go big or go home. I like the honesty there trying to feel alive. I wonder if that's the anthem of the unregenerate. 
spending cash, spending energy, spending whatever it takes, but truly at the same time walking in spiritual death. Whether or not they sang this song in Ephesus, we can know that they were living spiritually dead people. They were living people who were spiritually dead. They may have very much looked alive. They may have very much seemed carefree, but they were spiritually dead. He gives some clarification here to what's actually going on there as he says they're walking according to the course of this world. That word, the course, is actually the word that means age. They're walking according to the age of this world. It means that those who are unregenerate are found conforming to the standards of the present world order. There's a passage that I consider often if you'd like to turn there, I'll give you a moment to do that. It's not essential, but if you'd like to, you can. It's in 1 John chapter 2. It's a passage that comes to mind very often for me as I consider my own life, my own walk, what's important to me. And it's one that I just immediately thought of considering the minds of the unregenerate or the practice of the unregenerate, walking according to the course of this world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If, anything love, or if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here's what the love of the world looks like. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Another version says the boastful pride in possessions. These are not from the Father, but is from the world And the world, by the way, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's talking about here this worldliness and this this gravitation toward what the world values. And this passage could be translated back in Ephesians as they're walking according to what the world values. That's a picture of death. I appreciated what one of my commentators, the way he put it, he says, they go along with what's fashionable the unregenerate, the living dead. They go along with what's fashionable and acceptable and are not out of step with the rest of the world. Hence, they embrace temporal values. You know what John said, these things are passing away. They're concerned only with activities and values of the present age and are not concerned with God or eternal values or with the judgment to come. The living dead, the unregenerate, walk and live according to the values of this present world. That's death. That's the first picture of death that Paul gives us. The second picture is in verse 2, B. The second part of verse 2, he says that they are following the prince of the power of the air. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, walking which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The lives of the living dead and the unregenerate are in accordance with Satan's rule, a very real being called Satan. And the air is the place or the sphere of activity of the devil. In other words, every place where there's something living, the devil is going to be trying to influence. It is the abode of living living beings, air breathers, 
where Satan rules. Consider these passages. Job chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, everywhere there's air, and from walking up and down on it. 1 John 5 19 says, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Lies, present tense. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, In their case, in the case of the unregenerate, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers not only walk according to temporal worldly values, but they also walk according to Satan's control as he roams to and fro wherever there's air. And as he exercises his power, that 1 John 5 points out, and as he blinds the minds actively of unbelievers, according to 2 Corinthians 4. Man, that sounds pretty doggone hopeless to me. You have lots going on just in these first two things that we've considered this morning. It appears that the unregenerate can actually say the phrase and mean it. The devil made me do it. Now, you can't, but the unregenerate can. They can say it and mean it. The devil made me do it. The last phrase in that second part of of the second verse is the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. The first phrase was following the prince of the power of the air, but the... Add to that the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Adding insult to injury, as if Satan influencing the unregenerate isn't enough. There's a very strong argument that this word spirit here is not a restatement of Satan. That the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience is not some sort of restating Satan. Paul never did that. He never referred to Satan as a spirit. There's a strong argument that specifically what he's talking about here is the inward and immaterial part of a person, the source of insight, feeling, and will. So it would be the spirit in humans that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. The unregenerate spirit, it seems, from this passage, is in cahoots with Satan, and it frankly does whatever it wants or wills. Made me think of Judges, this refrain in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He did what was right in his own eyes. The devil rules over the inward part of the unregenerate. It's a terrifying thought. Just to summarize the debt and interest so far from those two things. The unregenerate are the living dead. First, they walk according to what the world values. And second, they do that while following actively and being influenced in the very inner being by the ruler of this world. That sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Let's be really honest. That sounds pretty... Doggone hopeless. It is a horrible situation that he's painted for the Gentiles. It seems like it's insurmountable. They're spending all their cash trying to feel alive, but they're spiritually dead. Let's move on to verse 3. Go back to Ephesians if you've turned a page. 
Verse 3 provides the first picture of death for us. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now there's a shift here from the you Gentiles to the we Jews. A healthy portion of our New Testaments, and this letter especially, deal with Jew and Gentile matters. It's how you should read a large portion of your New Testaments. In fact, here's an example, just a beautiful example of a passage that's often taken out of context that really is more about Jew and Gentile. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How many times have you heard that? Countless times. The rest of the verse says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How you should read most of the New Testament letters are about reconciling Jew and Gentile. Did you know that? It's not just about reconciling you to God, but reconciling to ultimately seemingly irreconcilable people, Jew and Gentile. And this passage is an important transition, this shift here from the Gentile, now here where he deals with the Jew. So, so far he said, you Gentiles, you are dead spiritually, walking according to the ways of the world and following Satan. There'll probably be some other Jews in the room that go, yeah, yo, unclean Gentiles. But here he says something really surprising when he says, we. He goes from the you to the we. And the we Jews apparently join you in worldliness as we did the deeds, carrying out the the deeds of the flesh and of the reasoning mind. That carrying out is a present tense verb and it, 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 it suggests this ongoing practice of sin over and over and over again, gratifying the desires of the flesh and the passions. Paul says, man, the Jews are a mess too. The Gentiles are certainly a mess, but the Jews are a mess too. Has anybody read their Old Testaments? Does anybody agree? Man, just think about the last six weeks that we've spent in Isaiah, this picture in Isaiah of idolatry in God's people where they would trample his courts, yet they would go out and live just like the rest of the world being called underneath every green tree and going and offering themselves. 700 years earlier, before Isaiah, the mud hadn't even dried on the bottom of their feet yet from crossing the Red Sea. And they're worshiping a golden calf and grumbling about free food that falls from the sky. Yeah, I think they've proven that they can live according to their passions and their desires. You don't have to read far to see the worldliness of Israel in graphic display. The Jews had proven over 1,500 years of story from the Exodus that they live according to their passions and desires. And if you wonder about that, maybe read Hosea. Be a great guide for you. Or Ezekiel 16 would be another go-to passage. So the sons of disobedience, the Gentiles, are joined by the children of wrath, the Jews. And Paul has now painted a picture of not just Gentile and Jew, but the rest of mankind. And it's a terrible, dark picture. This is the depth of human debt and depravity. 
It's a terrible three verses. Spiritual death in these three terrible ways. Something that's very important that I want us to miss this morning and really is going to bring us to the point of the sermon is that Paul is saying that the Jews, God's chosen people, were just as guilty and just as dead as pagans who had never known God. Paul is saying the Jews are in cahoots with Gentiles in lostness. It's like they turn to the Gentiles and say, okay, Gentiles, you take walking in the world according to the, uh, walking in the, according to the world and following Satan, and we'll take carrying out the desires of the passions and the flesh and the mind. You take that wickedness, we'll take this wickedness, and we'll be in cahoots together. Both are guilty and both are dead. I'm going to tell you right now, this is not welcome news for Jews. Only other passage I have you to turn to this morning is in the book of John, John chapter 8. And I want you to turn there. I want you to see a little story that developed in John chapter 8. Jesus, in some ways, presented the same message of the hopeless situation of the Jews. John chapter 8, we've called the revival gone bad over the years. He's preaching about being the light of the world and says many people are believing in him. In verse 30, it says, as he's saying these things, many believed in him. It's pretty cool. You can imagine at that point in the, in the revival they, that they've passed out, the disciples have gone out and passed out the little cards with the little golf pencils that are never really sharp, sharp enough to, to write anything. But then you just try and scribble out your name and your date of decision and your address so they can follow up with you. Okay, the disciples have passed out the cards by this point, and it's looking like they're going to close and dismiss, but then Jesus keeps on talking, and the revival just goes bad. It unravels. In verse 31, he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, from verse 30, not a different group of people. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? They're awfully forgetful about 400 years in Egypt, about exile into Assyria, exile to Babylon. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What are you talking about? We'll be free. We don't need freedom. We already are free. We've never not needed it because we've always been free. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's another way of saying what Paul has said this morning about death and depravity. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works, of your, fa you're doing the works your father did. And in verse 44, he identifies their father. 
You are, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. And by the end of the chapter, in verse 59, it says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They set down those little golf pencils. They set down those little cards. And by the end of it, they picked up stones because he said, your daddy's the devil. Man, it is a riot-inducing truth. Jesus was nearly stoned as a result of it. You have to wonder, how come Paul's, trying to, how come Paul's getting stoned all, all the time? It's because he's saying things like he said right here in Ephesians. We too were by nature children of wrath. We too walked according to our flesh and our desires and our passions. Consider this for a moment and let it really hit you. These were God's chosen people he's speaking about. They had the story of their birth through Abram, later Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the exodus. They had Moses' movement as he led them out of Egypt. They had Sinai of all things. And what was given to them at Sinai, the law. They had manna and quail and God's patient guidance through Moses in the wilderness experience. They had the conquest where God fit all the battles, Jericho and every the rest of them. They had the period of the judges where God did all these crazy miraculous events. They had the period of the kings. They had the tabernacle. They had the temple. They had the exiles, the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile, and then partial restoration to the land. They had every opportunity and every reason to be in a very different spiritual situation than the Gentiles. And Paul here says, you're just as dead and as hopeless walking in the ways of the world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the desires and the passions of the flesh and mind, and all are due God's wrath. After I left the Marine Corps, I went to graduate school in South Carolina. And a big part of graduate studies in my degree, I was in exercise physiology, a big part of my studies there involved experiments. And I learned early on as I'm taking statistics classes and these classes that teach you how to do these experiments that, first of all, you have to identify your, your groups. You have a sample group. A sample group is going to be, like say, for example, you want to test uh, some sort of diet and exercise regimen on a group of men between the ages of 18 and 22, College-age kids, there's lots of them there on campus in Columbia, South Carolina. So they made a nice sample group. Okay, we're going to take a, a sample of 18 to 20-year-old, 18 to 22-year-old men, 100 of them. Let's just make it easy. We're going to take a sample of these guys, 100 of them. 50 of them we're going to call our test group, and the other 50 we're going to call our control group. And the test group, we're going to give them this battery of exercise testing, exercise regimen, a diet to go on. And then the other ones, we're just going to, we're not going to tell them to go eat honey buns necessarily, but if they're in the practice of eating honey buns and watching soap operas to just keep it up, don't do anything different. Don't you go get on an exercise program because you're going to mess up our results. Our test group is on this program that we're, this stimulus that we're giving them. The rest of you just continue on your merry way. 50 over here, 50 over here. I want you to imagine for a moment that this thing unfolding like an experiment. Just consider, just imagine this, this stimulus that, 
The nation of Israel is our test group, and they are exposed to every God-experiencing stimulus that they possibly could for a couple thousand years. It's a very long test. I think graduate school is long. That would be a really, really long test. For a couple thousand years, they're exposed to every God-experiencing stimulus possible. And then the Gentiles don't get any of that. And then Paul calls them all together at the end of the experiment and says, okay, the results are in. And the Jews are like, sweet, because I feel pretty good. I mean, I've been on my diet. I feel leaner. I've been exercising. I feel faster. I feel like my heart, resting heart rate's gone down. You know, I feel, I feel pretty good. I, I, I already know what the results are, but Paul, I'll go ahead and listen to your results. And Paul comes back and says, um, there's no, st-, he's got his clipboard in hand too. And his glasses and his white lab coat. There's no statistical difference between God's people and the pagans in terms of sinfulness, deadness, and hopelessness. The differences are negligible. <laughs> Let that hit you for a moment. Imagine being in the test group. You understand why they want to pick up stones and kill Jesus or Paul or whoever says you're just as dead as the Gentiles? It's an offense to them. Paul says, sorry, boys, there's no statistical difference between you and the ones who ate honey buns and sat on the couch. The experiment was well executed. It wasn't a matter of the design. The testing was sure, but the outcome yielded very disappointing results. Man, apparently, uniformly, is dead and doomed and apart from God's power displayed in making sinners saints will remain there. See, what all these groups needed, the subject, or what the, what the sample group and the control group and the test group all needed is they needed a new subject to take the test for them and to give them his results. That's what they needed. Now, just a few application thoughts. First, for Christian Jews. I want us to consider what, how this would apply to them then first before we consider how it's going to apply to us. Why would Christian Jews need to hear something like this? They needed to know that, that their 2,000 years of God-experiencing stimuli were mostly just to help them diagnose their need for something completely outside of themselves. All those things should have taught them to pine for and hope for the Messiah to come. God could, after all, turn stones into the children of Israel. He said that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Why would Christian Gentiles need to hear this? Well, they should know and needed to know that they're not somehow second-class Christians relegated to a life of carrying around their former lives in shame. They wouldn't have to walk around because they were Gentiles that came to Christ in faith saying and singing, I'm unclean, I'm unclean Jews. Just tolerate me because of my past pagan history. They needed to know that Jewish Christians weren't somehow better than them simply because they had experienced God's favor for 2,000 years because all were dead in their trespasses and sins. All were due his wrath. Now, why would Christian Jew and Christian Gentile in the Ephesian church need to hear this? Knowing these things would certainly help break down the wall of division between the seemingly irreconcilable Jew and Gentile. 
God did something so profound that the uniformly dead test and control groups would make up one new whole group. This group that in testing had proven to be uniformly dead, he would make into a whole new group, and later in the book of Ephesians, he'd call them a new humanity. You know what that new humanity is called? It's called the church. There is no Jew and Gentile in the church. There's just his children. And that's what they needed to know. His work of salvation wasn't only to reconcile separation between God and man, but between man and man. It's not just a vertical reconciliation, but a horizontal reconciliation. It's a reconciliation between one man that shows up at 8 a.m. and works the whole day and another man that shows up at the end of the day and both of them get the same wage. It's about a reconciliation between a son who goes astray and then one who never left home. It's about a reconciliation between a Hatfield and a McCoy. About reconciliation between black and white, rich and poor, male and female. Between a man and a wife. Anybody else married and need to hear that? Christ redeemed that and he gave us goods to reconcile that. Between young and old between north side and south side, and maybe even between Aggie and T-Sip. Isn't that crazy? It is that powerful. Seeing and appreciating uniform deadness, really having a view to it, uniform deadness and uniform need would sure grease the skids for uniform humility and resultant Peace as a new humanity called the church. Yeah, they needed to hear that. So what's the application for us? Man, here's the good news. His work wasn't just an ancient display of power that we talk about. This isn't a history class. We're not talking about something that just happened a long time ago back in the olden days that we just sort of nostalgically consider and then we go about our way. The power that was demonstrated then is just as powerful and just as much at work now. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Just like everybody, like be really alert. Husbands, Elbow your wives. It's more likely it's the other way around, but I'm trying to be gracious. So husbands, elbow your wives and pay attention to this statement. It takes just as much power to save an Ephesian from the worship of Artemis as it does to save a Jew from dead works, as it does to save you from worldliness and sin of every contemporary sort. Just as much power. And here's the crazy thing. We often talk about creation as being this amazing display of power, which it was and is, where in six days he speaks whole galaxies into place. He speaks the complex world into into place. He speaks all these things into into place. A, A beautiful display of power. But you know what? Creation took place in a week with just the spoken word But the powerful work of making sinners into saints took roughly 2,000 years of storyline from Abram to Jesus. 
The work of taking sinners and making them saints took 33 years of sinless life by His own Son wearing human flesh. It took seven trials before Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate, and finally before a Jewish crowd shouting, Give us Barabbas. It took six hours on the cross and three days in a tomb. Man, this power to make sinners saints was profound. And it's the same power that it took to save an Ephesian is the same power that it took to save you. And then there's the power of the resurrection on Sunday morning that according to the rest of our passage is the same power that raises us from spiritual death. The answer to the human problem then for a Jew and a Gentile is the answer to the human problem now. God's power toward us in making sinners saints through Christ's work. The world says, what else you got? The world, in fact, calls that folly, according to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is just folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Man, we should know that this display of power, too, wasn't just about making peace between Jew and Gentile, but it's also about making peace between a man and a woman. A husband and a wife that are thinking, how can we do another 10 years of this? How can we do another 10 minutes of this? This work was profound enough to give you the means to walk in that. It's reconciled man and woman. This work of the cross has reconciled father and son. Any fathers and sons crossways struggling right now? If you both have Jesus, you've got the goods. It was already earned for you. You already have the peace to walk in. So it's far from hopeless. It's far from doomed. It's the opposite. Between brother and sister even. (laughs) Anybody need to hear that? Any brothers or sisters need to hear that? A great reason we should work real hard at maintaining peace with one another is because of what was already earned and because of who earned it. And I'll tell you this right now, seeing each other as gravely guilty but wonderfully forgiven is a great first step to reconciliation and peace as we sit together as sinners made saints. That's a phrase worth remembering. Sinners made saints. That's your neighbor next to you. That's yourself if you're trusting Christ. Sinners made saints. It's really level, isn't it? It's really level right here. That makes for humility, that makes for peace. We are all equally in need of grace in equal measure. And we need to know, people, we need to know the impossible debt that's been forgiven us. We need to know and feel the shackles of that slavery, I think, before we can truly appreciate and enjoy the freedom of forgiveness. That's why we're dedicating an entire morning to it this morning. Without it, I fear we could take freedom for granted. Without it, I fear we could trample on grace like it was cheap. I struggle, frankly, just as much with a debtless and deathless version of the gospel where it's left out as I do a graceless one. 
because they're both terribly imbalanced. It's part of the story. In order to enjoy your deliverance, you have to have a keen view of what you've been delivered from. And man, it's spiritual death and it's dark. Keeping what we were in view helps fuel gratitude for what we are now. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I am thankful this morning that nobody, if they're trusting Christ, needs to walk away this morning feeling convicted. I know there's a suitable time for that. There's a context for conviction and guilt and shame even. But I'm thankful that there's nobody that's trusting Christ in this room this morning that needs to walk away with anything other than marvel and wonder and joy that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I'm thankful that we can walk away encouraged knowing that your power was displayed and directed toward us in Christ Jesus. God, I can't wait to preach these next two sermons. And I'm thankful for this one, though, that paints our need for Christ. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes as we enjoy the supper together that we will enjoy the solution to our debt. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's a dark picture of mankind painted this morning for Jew and Gentile and mankind walking according to what everyone else values, doing the devil's bidding, walking according to the values of a fallen world. Man, those are dark and heartbreaking things. And then topping all that off, doing whatever the flesh fancies, and then even rationalizing with our fallen minds. In all that, we're dealing with external influences and internal fallen drives. And frankly, apart from something happening, Jew and Gentile, mankind is pretty much doomed unless God acts. It's a vicious cycle with no escape. There's no way out. A terrible dilemma, and only God's power and grace can deliver us. And deliver us, it did. In spades. Deliver us. It did. That's where we're going these next next couple of weeks. But I'll just point out to you that there are hints here. There's hints even in these dark three verses that we considered this morning. A few words that I enjoy seeing, and I'm going to call them to attention as I read it. Let me go back to Ephesians. If you don't have it in front of you, you can turn back there, and we can read these together, these delightful words that we'll emphasize. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When he's talking to Jew and Gentile, he's talking about something that was past tense. It was dark and difficult and seemingly hopeless, but thank goodness it's past tense. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Though it's now at work in the sons of disobedience, it's not at work in you anymore. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Enjoy those past tense words in there. 
and enjoy together, anticipate together as a church where we're going this next week. But God, the two sweetest words in our Bible, I think. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I was saving the supper this morning for the part of the good news of the sermon because it's a weekly reminder of the good news. Nobody should walk away from here convicted and discouraged unless you don't know Jesus. I'm going to tell you that right now. If you don't know Jesus, I hope that this morning you felt the full weight of those pictures of death. I hope that you felt the darkness. You don't have to spend cash to try and feel alive if you don't know Jesus because you can find truly li- true life in him. But for the rest of us, don't leave convicted this morning. Leave celebrating the words, the once lived, the past tenses, and enjoying what is the difference. The only difference was God's power directed toward us in Christ Jesus. We celebrate it every week. We sung it before. What a beautiful song. Holding fast to the cross of Christ, that's all we can hold on to. But it's enough. As we distribute the elements this morning, let me encourage you. If you're not trusting Christ, this supper, you can watch it, but don't take it. It's for those who are trusting Christ as their only hope for salvation. It's for those who are enjoying the words for us, the past tense things because of what Christ has done. If you're still living in that, instead of taking the supper, reach out to who invited you or reach out to me or someone else that you may recognize in here. We would love to share with you how to trust Christ and how to find real life, not some semblance of it that you have to try and find with cash. Let's distribute the elements. Fitting way to end that sermon. Let me read that passage. The passage that that song was written from. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one, not a Jew, not a Gentile, no human being. Turns out no one is righteous, no, not one. So John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What a hopeless situation that would be. One of the elders said to John, he said, Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's the difference. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. He took it like a boss. He went and took the scroll. Mm. 
Enjoy that. From the right hand of Him who's seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. We're going to just enjoy this passage before we take and eat. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, no Jew, no Gentile, no human being, only you, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You paid that debt off that mankind inherited from their parents. From every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, you redeemed them. You've made them into a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. You know who he's talking about there? He's talking about the church. He's talking about us. Man, let's enjoy together what Christ has done, like a boss. Let's take and eat. Together in faith, let's take and drink. Let's continue in song. If you believe Jesus died for you and you are trusting Christ and you can't explain to someone what salvation means, these three Sundays are for you. At least they're for you. Three Sundays dedicated to a beautiful, very balanced passage of what does it mean to trust Christ. It's not only for those who can articulate it, though. It's for those who can and want to just enjoy it yet again, which is, there's a word for that. It's called worship. If we were just fact collectors, data collectors, like I already read that book, I already saw that movie, I don't need to do that again. But we're worshipers. Altogether different. Worshipers, oh, like we get to spend three weeks enjoying the anatomy of salvation? Oh, yes. Please. Thank you very much. Let's do that. Yes, yes, indeed. So today was your condition, the debt, the terrible human problem. Next Sunday is what God did. I can't wait for next Sunday. But then the third Sunday is why he did it. Don't you want to know why? It's not just that you were in a terrible situation that he saved you, but he did it for a purpose. A beautifully balanced passage. I'm looking forward to these next three weeks. I'm ex- these next two. I'm expecting you two to prepare for each week in prayer and in reading. Do do your part. I, I'll I'll prepare. I promise. I mean, as the Lord wills it. I'm not going to say that I'm going to do this or that without the Lord's involvement. But as the Lord wills it, I'll be prepared next Sunday, and you need to be prepared as well. Praying for your family, praying for yourself, praying that you have ears to hear, and reading it. Reading the passage, making notes, asking questions. You know where I'm going next week, so prepare for it. Just say, well, what verbs do I see God doing in here? It's a great question. Make notes about it, and then maybe look at some cross-referencing that your Bible might have. Do some study on your own, and you will feast next week. If you don't prepare for next week, you may or may not stay awake. (laughs) I'm just being honest. I'm not saying because it's going to be a sleeper. I'm just saying because you won't be ready. You may or may not, but it's it's 50-50.
We'll have to see. But if you prepare, you're going to be like, uh, you're going to be like, mmm, I'm with you. And I'm, I'm eating this, and I needed it. It's good. Okay, I'll make that promise to you. All right, so y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you. Let me encourage you, too, if you're here for the first time, welcome again. See Clay at that little table over there. Clay's back here in the back, and he'll meet you over there. Let us send you out with a little gift and a little packet that says who we are and what we believe. Let's pray. God, what a delightful, delightful time in your word this morning. is a hard, hard truth that we're reckoning with, but what a delight that it's past tense for those of us that are trusting in Christ. What a delight for your church. What great news that we have peace between us and you and peace with each other that we can just walk in. God, I pray that will be nourishment. It will be food, that it will sustain us as we go about our week, dealing with things that may not seem to fit with that truth, that you'll help us work those things out in your strength. Lord, I commit this people to you and offering them to you for the week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Y'all have a great week. Yes. Look.